most of you are going to find out tonight why it is that I normally don't use this stuff, and I normally try to get that old-fashioned board out and do my scribbling on it, uh, but it's hard for you to see that, and everybody can see this, so hopefully I've done a reasonable job at uh, doing the PowerPoint, but I have no guarantees. So if it all boils down to it, if this isn't working, I'm going to run over there and get that blackboard, and I'll start scribbling for you. I asked Lindsay this morning what uh, grade she was in, and I was going to try not to pick on her, and I'm not, because she's not a sophomore. But sophomore is an interesting word. She's, she's about to be, because it comes from two words in Greek, sophos and moros. Sophos meaning wise, and moros meaning a fool. Or, of course, moros sounds like moron, sort of. And so when you're a sophomore, essentially, the definition of that is a wise moron. Sandy has, uh, Lindsay has that to look forward to next year, being that wise I won't say it. She's a smart student, but uh, that's the definition. And that ties into what I'm going to talk about tonight in this manner. What I'm going to talk about is something that's simple, and yet it's complex. It's really a very simple subject, and yet because of the denominational thinking that we see round about us and sometimes it influences our own thinking, it can be somewhat complex because we've got to put aside certain baggage that we may have, certain preconceived notions and ideas that we've always carried with us because of the influence of the surrounding world. But Nashville can be an area that can be confusing, especially to those people who carry that baggage, who have been influenced by the denominational mindset. For example, we've got the Franklin Church of Christ. We've got Brentwood Church of Christ, Otter Creek Church of Christ, Harpeth Hills Church of Christ, Woodland Hills Church of Christ, Concord Road, West Main, Fourth Avenue, Broadmoor, Riverside Drive, Bell Road, and that's just a fraction of them. You see this everywhere. There's churches of Christ all over the place. In Franklin, there's probably four or five within a five-mile radius of downtown Franklin. Aren't Maybe more than that, but there's at least that. And to the casual observer, it may look like that these are all just branches of the same denomination. It may also look like these people can't get along. I don't know. Maybe that's the case sometimes, but, uh, but that's not necessarily uh, what it is. Many will summarize our general beliefs because they've heard them in some fashion or another over the years or what they think are our beliefs by saying, have you ever heard this? You people in the Church of Christ, you think you're the only ones going to heaven. You people don't believe in music. All they know is Acts 2 and verse 38, baptism, baptism, baptism. And even among those who proclaim to be in churches of Christ, you have these kind of uh, divisions that go on or labels that go on. They're the anti-group. Oh, they're the liberal group. They're the non-institutional group. They're the conservative group. We're mainstream. We're one cup, whatever. And there's probably some other divisions that, uh, that you could point to as well. But let's take that a step farther. Even among those churches that do not proclaim to be institutional in nature, they've tried to stay away from institutionalism because of the authority issues, this church being one of those that would at least in a general sense, uh, identify ourselves with, with that kind of a movement, although we've got to be careful identifying with movement uh, for reasons that we'll get into in a few minutes. 
But we can subdivide it farther to, you know, well, Romans 14. There's a lot of divisions that take place among non-institutional churches based upon an understanding of what Romans 14 is all about. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There's a day-age application in Genesis 1 that some people believe that one day is equal to eons, and some people believe it's, uh, and myself included, I believe that it means what it says. It, it, it defines a day, and uh, and you had creation over a six-day period, and God rested on the seventh day. Uh, in years past, some of these magazines don't exist, and I know nobody ever said it in these terms, but you had certain congregations that seemed to identify with certain magazines. Truth, Christianity, uh, Century, there may be some others too. And so these kind of classifications go on sometimes. In addition to that, we see websites and other publications. We see camps. Again, camps are not officially associated with the church, but to the casual observer, they might be, depending on how we phrase things and where the camp announcements come in. Uh, colleges, lecture series at Florida College and other places. And again, to the casual observer, some of these things may look like a denominational system. And perhaps there are times when we think of it in the same terms, although we're probably not willing to call it a denomination, maybe we get into the mindset, because we're affected by the world around about us, that we start thinking in terms of denominations rather than what the Bible says. Well, let's think about the term denominations. According to the American Heritage Dictionary, one of the definitions that you'll uh, see listed there is that denomination is a class of units. Certainly, we can think of that in terms of money. When we go to the bank and we ask for $200, they're going to ask us, well, what denomination do you want this in? You want it in 20s, 5s, 10s, in other words. Uh, and so the idea behind that is that it is a division of Christianity. A denomination is one division of Christianity. And what that suggests is that there are various doctrines under the general heading of Christianity. And, of course, I think we all understand here, hopefully, the, the fallacy of that kind of thinking, that Christianity is not, in, in truth, composed of all kinds of various doctrines and denominations. But that's nevertheless what a lot of people believe to be. Denominations are also characterized sometimes by some kind of an official title that must be carried, an official name that that church carries. This is this denomination, and if you don't bear this particular title, then you're not part of this denomination. Also associated with denominationalism is an earthly organization with an associated hierarchy with that, and congregations make up the whole denomination. In other words, the denomination is not composed of the individuals, but rather it's composed of all the congregations that call themselves by that particular name. Well, what do we do sometimes? And I'm talking about those of us who would proclaim to be within God's true church, nothing more, nothing less, not part of a denominational system. What do we do? Well, sometimes... And I see this is going to be cut off a little bit because of that shrinking it to 5.7, so I apologize for that. But sometimes we start thinking in terms of uh, various doctrines under the Church of Christ. We listed some a couple of slides ago where you have Romans 14 and various understandings of that, or marriage, divorce, and remarriage, or one cup, or, or some of the other issues that, that sometimes come up. 
And sometimes we can think in terms, not rightly so, but we can think in terms of the fact that there's no differentiation as long as the title Church of Christ is carried. Or we might think that, well, there's no official creed, and yet if we look a little bit deeper, then uh, we've got sort of a creed, and I'm not saying we do, but creed can become something that's not in writing, but you can use the brotherhood as your creed. You can use all the writings and publications of somebody who's in the brotherhood as your creed if you want to do that. We should not do that, but sometimes we can fall into that trap where rather than going to the Bible and understanding what it teaches, we refer to what all the preachers and the writers or the teachers at a college, what they want to present. And so that can be a downfall as well. you recall the Mary Winkler trial just last year, I guess it was? I don't know if you watched any of that, but I tuned in a couple of times here and there. And one of the things that, while I'm not sure it happened during the trial, but during some of the commercials or before a commercial break, some of the people would make commentary on that trial. And some of the commentary I heard was that, well, the Churches of Christ, or the Church of Christ, teaches this. The Church of Christ, it believes that. Uh, the Church of Christ, they do this in the Church of Christ. They do that. And I kept hearing that over and over again, and it made me cringe just a little bit because that's falling after that same denominational concept that the Church of Christ is composed of this denomination called Church of Christ, and then all the congregations that, that call themselves the same thing follow after these doctrines, and they're all the same. And I don't believe that's the case. And I can never overemphasize the fact that the Church of Christ doesn't teach to believe anything. Not as a title, not in the universal sense. Because we've got to go back to what God said on the matter, what the Bible teaches. We don't come up with our own doctrines and our own say-sos. The Bible, God tells us in the Bible what we need to be believing and what we need to do. You know, I know of a situation several years ago now at a local church where they were looking at establishing elders within that local congregation. And the evangelist that was located there suggested that this would be a good time for prayer and fasting. And somebody spoke up, and, or they didn't speak up right away, but they started complaining. One individual did, saying, I've been in the Church of Christ for 30 years, and I've never heard such a thing about fasting. Of course, had they looked in their Bibles, you'll see a lot about fasting. I'm not going to do a lesson on fasting tonight, uh, it's certainly an individual thing, but it's something that Christians in New Testament times practiced, and it's certainly something that would be a good thing to do to suggest that when you're about to appoint elders, prayer and fasting, that's a good thing to do. That's fine. That's biblical. That's according to the book. But her response, the, the person that didn't like this uh, concept or, or this suggestion, her problem is that she was looking at recent trends, the common practices in churches in recent years, the traditions that we've been holding in recent years, and she wasn't looking at what the Bible said on this matter. And that can be a problem. Well, in Matthew, the 16th chapter, in verse 18, Jesus said something about the church. Talking to Peter, after Peter had made that great confession, he said, upon this rock, upon the, the truth of that great confession that you just made, Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The word church 
really, if we want to understand the proper concept of, of what the church is and to leave the denominational thinking behind, we've got to understand what this word means. Now, we probably all, a number of us, have grown up and, and heard over the years that the church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And ek means out, and kaleo means I, I call or, or call. And so putting those together, called out. It's the group of the called out. And while that may, there may be a sense in which that's true, I'm going to suggest to you that maybe we need to forget about that definition just for a minute, minute and maybe the rest of our lives, and think about the common usage in New Testament times of this word. Because we get tripped up on that called out idea. Certainly we are called out of sin and into Christ, but that term is not referencing that calling out of sin and into Christ. Rather, that term is referencing a group of people, an assembly of people, God's people in some cases, but not always, because the term is also used in a physical sense. It was a common term that did not always refer to something that was a religious gathering. Uh, look with me, if you would, in Acts, the seventh chapter, in verse 38. In Acts 7 and verse 38, Stephen is speaking there, uh, recounting the history of Israel and really how the people had, in Israel had never listened. It was always a minority of the people who ended up listening, and this, he was getting at the case that the same was the case today or at that time, that people didn't listen then and they had crucified the Christ just as people had always not listened. But talking about Moses in particular, he, he references in chapter 7 and verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. Well, you know what this word congregation, what the Greek word is there? It's ekklesia. That's the word that most often we think of as church, and yet in this case, it's translated as congregation. And there's a reason why that's so, and that's because the everyday usage of this word meant a group of people, not necessarily in a religious sense. It was a general word used in common language. Acts 19 and chapter 32, there's another case where it's used. Remember when Paul was teaching in Acts, the 19th chapter, and as a result of that teaching in Ephesus, that uh, Demetrius the silversmith got the whole city in an uproar because people, by believing in the true word of God, they threw away all their magic books. They turned aside from all their idols, and Demetrius being a silversmith, that cut in on his business. And so he stirred up the city against uh, Paul. And so you have a riotous mob that's there in Acts, the 19th chapter, and verse 32, where it says, Some therefore cried out one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Again, when we look at this term assembly, this is talking. This is from the Greek word ekklesia. This isn't a spiritual gathering, is it? This is a riotous mob. What about verse 39 of the same passage? After the people quieted down a little bit. In verse 39, the city clerk is telling them, we're in danger of being called upon you know, by the Romans to, to come in and, and put a stop to this. The Romans had a way of uh, putting an end to rebellion, and any city that's crying out in a riotous fashion uh, was subject to being uh, punished right away, immediately. The Romans might just bring in their guards and, and kill people, throw people in jail, burn the city, do whatever. But he says in verse 39, but if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. He quiets this riotous mob down and he tells them, if you have something to say against Paul and these men who are teaching these things, 
You need to do it in the lawful assembly or in the court system. But again, this word assembly is the word ecclesia that's used here. And again, this is not talking about a spiritual gathering of people, but rather it's uh, a group of people who are assembled in a lawful manner, a little bit more organized than the riotous mob of a few verses before. And then, of course, in chapter uh, 19 and verse 41, and when, they had, when he had said, the city clerk had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. In this case, the assembly, again, is ecclesia in the Greek, and it refers to the quieted down mob. And then, of course, in Matthew, the 16th chapter, in verse 18, upon this rock I will build my church. Ecclesia is the word that's used there for church. And that indicates Christ's body of the saved. And that's really the most common use in the New Testament. God took this word and he made it a special word that applies to his people. So most of the time in the New Testament it does refer to a religious gathering of sorts, but it was not always necessarily the case. So when we think of the word ecclesia, and I understand that a called out group of people really is an assembly, but I think sometimes we lose the true definition when we think of called out rather than assembly. And that's why I'm trying to get you, when you think of the word church, think of a congregation or an assembly of God's people in the spiritual sense. And if there's nothing else you can take away from tonight, please take that point away and apply it accordingly. I think it's going to help us if we can think of the church as God's group of saved people or his assembly of the saved. Here's three examples why that we're going to get into in just a second. This statement that we said a while ago, you think you people in the church of Christ are the only ones going to be saved. And then also we'll look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. There's some good application we can take from understanding the proper definition of this word in that passage, and the same applies to 1 Timothy 5, 16. Let's look at this first statement, though. You think Church of Christ are the only ones going to be saved. And every time I hear somebody make that argument against me, now, it is likely that I disagree on some things. But most people who are in denominations in Nashville don't truly disagree with me on this. Now, they think they do, but that's because they don't understand what the church really is. When you understand that the church is really the body of the saved, what they're asking is, are you telling me the body of the saved is going to be saved and that's all? Are God's saved ones the ones who are going to be saved? Well, I can answer that with one word. In fact, one syllable. Duh. What about 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35? A couple of verses here says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. If we understand what the true definition of church is, it's going to help us to apply this. When do we apply it? When the church is assembled. And incidentally, I, the, the context is speaking out above everybody else having the floor. That type of context it doesn't apply, I don't believe, to touching your child or, or even to singing. What about 1 Timothy 5.16? If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. 
And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. Is there a difference between certain individual responsibilities and certain responsibilities of the local church? According to this verse, there is. If we understand that the church is the assembly, we understand, because some people want to argue when they get into some of these institutional issues, well, the church and the individual, it's really the same thing. No, the church means the assembly of a group of people. It's not the same thing, and 1 Timothy 5.16 highlights that point. The church, in a local sense, should not be burdened with certain things. Well, let's look at some other ways that ecclesia is used in the New Testament. But I hope you get just a quick appreciation from those three things we just looked at and how much immediate application we can get just from having a proper understanding of what this word means. Let's look at some more. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. All right. The term ecclesia is used in this verse as well. Now, how is it used? The church, what are they? Well, there's one sense in which the church is composed of those who are registered in heaven. Now, that's in a figurative sense. We're not physically assembled in heaven now. That's not where we are. However, our names are written in the book of life, which is in heaven, and there's a sense from that standpoint that we are assembled together in heaven. That's how we are an assembly in heaven right now, according to Hebrews 12 and verse 23. So it's a figurative sense. And, of course, in the long run, that's where we will be in the, in the spiritual sense. And uh, there's really no physical in the long run, I don't guess. But uh, that geographically, I guess, we will be located when we're faithful and we end up in heaven with God in the end. And that's God's body of the saved, who are, whose names are registered in heaven. That is the universal church. This is the same thing that it's talking about when 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9, tells us that we're living stones that we are a royal priesthood. This is talking about everybody on earth who happens to be saved. Those who sustain a relationship with God by virtue of the fact that they've rendered obedience to the gospel of Christ. This is the same thing that's being talked about in Acts, the second chapter, and in verse 47, where it says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I always had problems with that because I grew up hearing people say, no, you don't join the church, you're added to the church. And I didn't exactly understand. I mean, you've got to come and join yourself to the people in a local sense. And yes, you do. But what happens is when you become saved, the Lord automatically just puts you in his group. He writes you in his book of life, and you're among the body of the saved when that happens. And that's all this is talking about. You're added to the body of the saved when you went put on Christ in baptism, just as the people earlier in Acts 2 had done. Well, you can't see it here, but Ephesians 1 and verse 22 and verse 23, we understand that the church is the body of Christ. And in chapter 4 of the same book, in verse 4, we see that there is one body. And in the universal sense, in the sense that there's only one body of the saved registered in heaven, there's only one church from that standpoint. After all, how many bodies of the saved can there be? Well, ecclesia in the New Testament is also used in a local sense, and I think we all know this. Hebrews 10 and verse 24 
the writer there reminds the Hebrews that they need to be provoking one another unto love and good works, or stirring one another up unto love and good works. And in verse 25 of the same chapter, he tells them that they shouldn't be forsaking the assembling of themselves together. One of the ways that they can stir one another up to love and good works is by assembling together. And that's what we do. We sing. We try to provoke one another into love and good works by singing, by having lessons from the Word of God and, and prayer. We try to lift each other up by becoming together. And so by virtue of that, there's a sense in which churches operate in a local sense as well. We see in Romans 16 and verse 5, also in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 19, that you can have a church in a house. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2, we see there was a church of God at Corinth. Chapter uh, or Romans 16 and verse 16, we see that Paul said because he had been in a number of places, uh, and in those places that he had visited, were sending their greetings to the church of, uh, the church of Christ in Rome. And so Paul could say in Romans 16, verse 16, the churches of Christ salute you, or the churches of Christ greet you. So in this sense, there can be many assemblies. This is different than the usage of the term when it's talking about the body of the saved that has their names registered in heaven. And this assembly, or these assemblies, are based on geography. God expects us not to be islands to, of our, to ourselves. And because of that, he wants us to work together to provoke one another into love and good works, and in so doing, we've got to be geographically assembled together and not just assembled together in heaven. And so in a geographic sense, we can have numerous churches, local churches. And we see that church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Jerusalem, the church at Bell Road, the church here on Franklin Road. Let me ask this then. We saw that slide early on that had all of those local congregations in the Nashville area, and of course there's a lot more that we could have added to that, are all that say they are a church of Christ, truly a church belonging to Christ? And the thing that we've got to remember when we're trying to get our minds away from the denominational mindset is that the name does not make us right. Now we've got to wear the right name, we've got to wear a name that's biblical, but the name doesn't make us right. Adherence to the Word of God is what makes us right, as individuals and in the collective work that we do when we come together and, and the things that we do as a local church. Those things make us where we belong to Christ. All right. That looks a little different this afternoon, but okay. Let's look at how the universal and local church then is used in the New Testament a little bit more. The universal church is composed of all the saved ones whose names are registered in heaven. That is, individual Christians and not local churches. Now that's important because sometimes we get into the mindset of thinking, what's the church made of? It's made of all the local congregations of Christ. And that's not true. That's not what you see in the Bible. What you see in the Bible is that everybody, and what I've done on here is I've represented individual Christians with an X here. And here is a local congregation. This could be the church at Corinth. And in particular, I'm, I'm going to make it the church at Corinth. God sustains a relationship with everybody who is baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. In Acts the 8th chapter, we see that Ethiopian treasurer who was taught by Philip 
And as a result of that teaching, he was baptized into Christ. At that time, he had a relationship with God, even though he was traveling. He was not a part of a local congregation at the time. Now, I like to think that he started one or became a part of a local work at some point in time, understanding that God doesn't want us to be those islands to ourselves. He wants us to provoke one another into love and good works. But even so, at the time, there was a time when in Acts the 8th chapter that this Ethiopian treasurer was not part of a local congregation, yet he was still in God's universal church. His name was written in the book of life once he washed his sins away. What about the case in Corinth? God sustains a relationship with the individuals in Corinth as well. Every individual that sustains a relationship with God is part of the universal church. And they may be part of a local church as well. Now, there's a time and a place maybe where because as a local church they would not be operating within the realm of faith, maybe they weren't doing things the way they should, and we learn from Revelation the second chapter and Revelation the third chapter that there may be a time when God or Jesus removes the candlestick from that church, that all of a sudden those lines disappear because they are not working collectively in accordance with what God has authorized. So that could happen. But in general, we like to think that everybody who's in a local church has a relationship with God. And, and it's important to think about this, too. The reason we can be assembled together as a local church, the reason the Corinthians could be assembled together as a local church was first and foremost because of their relationship that they had with God. They were people who had their names registered in heaven, and so they were among God's saved people. And then, because they were in a locale living in a certain geographical region, they could work together and provoke one another into love and good works. And that's what they should be doing. That's what we should be doing. Now, however, we can remember in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, there was a man there who had his father's wife in that incestual relationship. There's a case where I don't have a line from God to that person because he was walking in sin so much that even the church had stumbled a little bit over this, and Paul reminded them that they need to take action over this, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, that they should be sorrowful rather than puffed up and proud about this situation. And that goes to show that sometimes within a local church, somebody can be a member, their names can be on our registers, they can have their names on, our, uh, on the board back there and their pictures on the wall, and we don't always know it because sometimes it's because of some hidden sin, but they may not sustain that relationship with God. So in a local sense, the local church can be composed of both saved and non-saved. And hopefully that doesn't last for too long of a period, but this shows that it is the case sometimes. Here's a denominational system. The denominational system would have you believe that God has his approved church and that church is this whole box and within that box all the local congregations who call themselves by that church's official title or that official name, that's what this church is made of. Now that's not taught in the Bible, but that's the denominational concept. So you've got to be in the church in order to be saved. Well, that would exclude the Ethiopian treasurer before he was part of a local church. What's the problem with this kind of a system? Well, first of all, it's not in the Bible. 
That's the biggest problem. But think about the common sense of it. In this kind of a system, how does false doctrine spread? It spreads like wildfire, because if you have somebody here at the head of the church, then where does it get filtered to? It affects everyone. Now, what happens, and I didn't draw on this previous one. Um, I shouldn't do that. It takes too long to bring it back up. In that previous slide that I showed, what happens in God's system when you have, let's say, one church goes into apostasy? But because that church is autonomous, it operates and governs its own affairs in accordance with what God says. Remember 1 Peter, the fifth chapter and verse 2, when Peter is giving instruction to elders there, he tells them they need to shepherd the flock that's among them. So the autonomy of each church, they govern their own affairs, they're independent. You don't have this hierarchy. You don't have this organization where the church is composed of all the local congregations. And if you have false teaching in that kind of a system, it's tragic, it's unfortunate, but ideally it should affect only the people within that congregation and not all the other congregations uh, round about. Now, there are some dangers uh, in, in some of the things that we mentioned early on tonight. Unfortunately, that is one of the dangers of Brotherhood newspapers and, and publications and colleges and things like that. I'm not saying those things are inherently wrong, but there are some dangers associated with them because they can have, I don't know what happened there. I think I'm flicking my thumb a little too much. Because those kind of uh, preachers, uh, big name preachers or, or some writer of a publication or some website, or some college, they can have a great influence over a number of congregations, undue influence sometimes, without much accountability toward those congregations. And so we've got to watch those kind of things and be careful of them, because they kind of mimic, in some ways, this denominational organization. Well, let's look at this. What about the name, then? Let's remember that one aspect of denominationalism is that they carry with it official titles that they must be called by when God has not specified certain titles that we must be called. And it's worth asking, when we think about that, what exactly was established on the day of Pentecost? It wasn't the Church of Christ as a title. In fact, the Bible uses other terms uh, that we could call ourselves from a scriptural standpoint. Maybe there's some reasons we don't want to. But we could call ourselves the Church of God. I mean, because the Church of God at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2, maybe there's a reason, uh, other reasons we don't want to, but that's a biblical name. That's a biblical way to describe ourselves. Uh, the Church of the Firstborn, the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's other names in the Bible that we see God calling his church. And the reason why is because there's not one official title that God had set forth that we must call ourselves by that title and none other. These are descriptions of what we should be. We should be God's assembly of the saved. We should be God's called out group of people in the sense that we're gathered together in the physical sense working together and called out in the sense that we have our names registered in the book of life in heaven. Since we know what the church means, it means assembly, then, you know, assembly of God or assembly of Christ could also be used and be biblical. Again, I'm not saying that that's what we ought to call ourselves. There are some, you know, somebody might say, well, there's some denominations that teach the wrong things that call themselves by that. Well, guess what? There's churches of Christ that 
that they call themselves that that teach wrong things too. And so we just got to be careful about some of these things with regards to the name. I just want to make it clear, I'm not advocating that denominations with biblical names are okay, and that, or that we must drop the name that we have on our sign out front. I'm not trying to advocate that at all. But rather, what I'm trying to get across to us and emphasize is that what was established in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, that was not something that was the official title, the beginning of the, the institution, the Church of Christ, but rather it was simply when God's plan to save mankind was put into effect, or put into full effect. And I just want to warn those who want to proclaim that they're not in a denomination, and yet the reason they say they're not in a denomination is because they wear the right name, uh, while otherwise acting and thinking just like a denomination. And what these people have done to Christ's church when they do that, is they've essentially turned it into a denominational system, the very thing that they claim not to be a part of. Well, Christ Church is not a denomination. It doesn't have an earthly title that we must carry, although a lot of the time we do carry, we try to carry the name of Christ, and, and that's not a bad thing. We don't have an earthly headquarters. We don't have an established creed except what the Bible says. And that's why you hear some of the old folks, you know, from years ago say that we speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible's silent. The Bible is our only creed. It's the only thing that we base any of our teaching on. We're not an institution or an earthly organization, and we're not composed, or the Church of Christ in a um, universal sense is not composed of all the congregations, the local churches. Rather, it's composed of everybody on earth who's saved who sustains that relationship with God by having been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And in a local sense, local churches do have some organization, but in the universal sense, Christ's church has no organization on this earth other than Christ is the king in heaven and we abide by what he wants by living in accordance with the word of God that we find in the Bible. But in the local sense, local churches do have some organization to help accomplish the work that we look at in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 11 and 12, when we see uh, that God gave certain functions within local churches to help build up the church, to help in the work of ministry, to help in uh, build, uh, teaching the gospel to those who are outside. And, of course, Philippians 1, verse 1, we see reference there to saints, we see reference to elders, we see reference to deacons there. First Peter 5, and verse 2 that we mentioned a little bit ago, we see reference to elders who are shepherding the flock which is among them. Autonomy. Folks, if we can't understand these things as God's people... And how are we going to be able to tell our neighbor about what the church really is about? 